You're listening to Wolf Spirit Radio. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for being on the Max Joe Show. I want to introduce first uh, my wife, Nicole, co-host, and uh, Jennifer Martin, co-host. And I got a lot of co-hosts, believe me. I don't know why, but I do. I like them. I like to be around beautiful ladies. And so, uh, well, not you, you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, you's also here uh, from uh, London. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, my producer, uh, Russ, uh, from Michigan, and Vanessa, my uh, Sergeant at Arms moderator. So don't play, don't play on uh, with me on the show, especially uh, in the, in the chat room. Okay. I got all kinds of protection. Uh, I know you guys, uh, I, I thank for the people in the, uh, Wolf Spirit chat room. Remember that this is, uh, a listener supported station. Please donate. And this is how we get the real truth seekers. That's going to be on my show in the next few minutes, but I got to say something like I always do. And I want to thank also the people in all over the world, Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, friends of mine in Russia, and, uh, well, I got to mention them too, uh, China, India, uh, and my buddies down there in the south, down under in Australia, South America, and all the United States. Thank you in Canada. Canada, thank you all my buddies and friends in Canada. You'll see me there very soon. I promise. Okay. Anyway, uh, I want to thank everyone for being here. And uh, my guest tonight is Stefan Sidoni. And uh, I don't know if I pronounce it right, but Sidoni. Sid, wait a minute. Sidoni. Right? Sidoni, okay. like, like Ron Zoni with an S. <laughs> uh, okay. Sidoni. Okay, uh, I can't pronounce name. I have problems with everybody. Anyway, I want to thank all of you, and uh, I said that already, didn't I? Okay, uh, uh, I want to well, apologize for something. I, I, last week, I didn't come in here and do a show. I was very, very sick, and uh, I, w I was hit with some black, mole that hit me in the face and um, I almost, it knocked me down. I didn't get hurt, but uh, I did get home. I, I couldn't do this show. I was so sick and I apologize for not being there. Okay, so uh, I want to apologize to Jennifer too. I'm sorry about I didn't communicate it with you. All right, for the show. Uh, go ahead, uh, Stefan, and pick your piece. Whatever you want to say, go ahead and say it. You are on the Max Steel Show, and there are no barriers here. Okay? I, so you I'd like to begin, Max, and just thank all of you for having me on the show, yourself, your wife, uh, and uh, Jen, Jen Martin, who is a longtime friend of mine, and I want to thank you, Jen, personally for uh, sticking with me throughout these years, thick and thin, and allowing me the opportunity tonight to uh, – 
let America and the world know that uh, what really has been going on um, the last two decades. So I, I, I plan to uh, to go over that, and I'm I'm going to use a format because uh, I was writing a different book uh, right now, and uh, as I did the uh, the outline for the show, I realized that I would write it in like uh, kind of chapters or segments and I would make it quick and, and painless for everyone listening to stay with it and tentative rather we stay on course and on point so what I will do is I've got at least 13 segments so uh, each segment probably three to five minutes maximum but at the end of each segment uh, we if there's questions that you have pertaining to what I'm speaking of I'll address them and thereafter we'll move on and uh, in the second hour, I believe we'll be able to have enough time to uh, the chat room and all the questions you may have based on the amount of information that I'll share. There's quite a bit. And after, after thinking about it, I wanted to do it in a way where I could grandfather in, so, you, so to speak, and allow everyone to be able to visualize what I'm about to say. So I'm going to begin here now. And in part one here, I'll talk about September of 98. In September of 98, I was single, and I was going to Montreal, Canada. I was going to, to hang out and party, so to speak, and uh, enjoy the, the nightlife in, in Montreal. So I, I drive to Montreal. It was a rainy night in September of 98, and uh, nobody was out that night. I just drove from uh, New Jersey uh, straight through and uh, had one drink in uh, the Saint Laurent Club that I was in, and decided, you know, I'll go back to uh, to my motel, which was in uh, Pont Champlain, across the bridge, and I would resume, you know, my uh, my two-day vacation there in Montreal after having a, a good night's sleep. I figured the weather would clear out the next day. As I got in my car, it was raining profusely, and uh, I was stopped by a police sobriety check. So I roll my window down, and uh, they asked me a couple questions, and no big deal. They they waved me on, and I. I make a left onto a street heading back towards the bridge. I must have got eight blocks in when a, a white arrow star van started beeping its horn at me. So I look over. It's hard to see because it's raining. And uh, I didn't pull over because I didn't know who it was. I'm in a foreign country. And next thing I know, the Ford arrow star van motions me over and they almost sideswipe me, forcing me onto the curb uh, on, on a side street. So I stopped my car and I'm looking. I said, is this out of the twilight zone or, uh, you know, something eerie, you know, from, uh, from beyond? And some guy walks up to me and he's wearing a uniform, a military uniform with a riding jacket and boots. And he's got like a beret on. He looked like Curtis Sliwa, the guardian angels in New York, if people can understand, I'll paint that picture. And he walks over and he says to me, uh, Muhammad. And I look at him, I roll the window down, I says, my name's not Muhammad. I says, I don't know who you're looking for, but you've got a case of mistaken identity. All of a sudden, he put a frown on his face, and he motions to the van, and another fellow gets out of the van, and next thing I know, he's pointing an automatic weapon in my face. So I look at this, I go, what the hell is going on? So the man says to me, uh, can I see your identification? I says, only if I can see yours first. I says, I just passed the police sobriety check. I know who the Montreal police are. and You guys are not, you know, uh, working for the, the, the Montreal police. Who are you? So reluctantly, he goes into his jacket and he pulls out his ID. I look at the ID and it has a picture of himself and the Israeli uh, 
Mossad emblem on it with the menorah. So I realized these guys were Israeli agents. So, so now I pull out my ID and I show him mine. And he says to me, oh, so you're from the United States. Because uh, your license is New Jersey. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm an American. I said, I'd like to know why are you stopping me and calling me Muhammad? So he looks at me. He says, well, we're looking for terrorists and you fit the profile. I, I said, I fit the profile? He says, well, since the 1998 incident with the coal bombing at sea, we're looking at everyone who comes into the country uh, as foreigners who, who, may, who may be terrorists. I looked at him. I was got annoyed. I said, terrorists? I said, I said, you guys appear to me to be the terrorists. I said, why are you pointing this weapon in my face? So he says to me, well, can we search your car? I said, only if I can watch. So I get out of the car, and that's ringing like you can't believe, Max. And I'm saying to myself, uh, I'm going to get killed here tonight, it looks like. And, but I'm not going to go down without a fight, you know. I'm taking one of these guys, uh, or if not both of them. And uh, so that was my mindset at that point. So they look in my car, and they don't find anything. And, and one of the guys says to me uh, in, uh, in his really uh, accent, can you pop the trunk? I says, why do you want to go in my trunk? He says, because we want to see your luggage. I said, well, I don't have any luggage. And he goes, well, where's your luggage? I said, my luggage is back in my motel in, in Brasad, where it should be. So I popped I pop the latch, and the fellow with the machine gun goes over. He looks through the back, and he motions to the other man. He goes, there's nothing there. So at that point, I'm standing with the, the, the guy who initially uh, came over to the car. So I said to him, I said, I'm not going to forget your face. I said, and I don't appreciate being stopped here and at gunpoint. I said, I don't know who you are. Says the Israeli Mossad. I said, you guys are operating illegally. And when I get to the border, I am going to tell U.S. Customs what just happened tonight. So he laughed at me and he said, well, they're not going to believe you. I said, well, I'm going to tell my story. I says, I hope that you and I don't ever face each other again. I said, because I don't care if you, your buddy's got a gun in my face. It won't be pretty. I said, we don't take prisoners where I come from. I said, I'm from Brooklyn. I will kick you to the curb, and I'm not going to forget what you just done to me. So he says, well, we're going to leave now. I says, good. He says, just wait here until we leave. So I was raining. I get back in my car, and I'm, I'm, right now I'm drenched wet at this point. And I sit there and watch them pull away from, from the curb. At that point, I realized that my life had changed because I knew that I would have to go back to my motel, and, which I did, and I, I, I paced around all night. I could not go to sleep, Max. I was just livid about how could this happen? Who are these men? So the following day, I went and uh, drove right to the U.S. Customs, and I told U.S. Customs what had just happened. And U.S. Customs said, well, that shouldn't have happened. I said, well, it did happen. I says, I have a good, you know, uh, recall of who the men were, and, uh, and I could point them out if need be. So they said, well, we'll go ahead. We'll check this out for you. But, you know, you can go back into the United States. So that night I'm driving back in, and I noticed right from Jump Street as I got back into the U.S. there, there was cars that were following me, and they were like, pulling off. One followed me for like five, 10 miles and then someone else would follow me. But I blew it off. I said, you know what? 
I said, this is too early for me to get paranoid about this, but it was something that I was going to just keep in my memory bank about like what just happened, but I was going to watch my back and uh, being, I was by myself, you know, I realized the only thing I had was my wits about me and my cell phone there. And uh, so driving back home, which was a long way, I had to drive at least 12 hours to get back to where I was going. I just did my best to stay awake until I was able to get back into uh, New Jersey. That's pretty much what I'll say here in part one. Any questions? Hmm. I have a question, Stephen. Uh, when you said you can identify these guys, um, did that kind of put any kind of red flag out with the uh, border people? I mean, did, did you notice any kind of reaction out of them? Well, yeah, I did, I did. I did see a reaction out of the person who was questioning me, and uh, I told them I could identify them. But as I said, they then would have to do their investigation, and they would follow up. So I, I left them my number and everything, but I never heard back from from the border patrol regarding that. Yeah. Now, right after that, in October, about a month later, I noticed that my phone was tapped. And then there was a virus sent to my computer. And uh, then I was followed to work every day. And I was driving probably about 50, 60 miles to go to, to, to different places uh, throughout the state because I was a, an account rep for a company. And my job was to oversee uh, all the places that we had workers. And uh, so I could be one day in one area. And at the end of the day, I could be 100 miles away. And it's pretty easy for me to see that there were people that were following me to different warehouses when I was going. And I realized that something was different in my life and I just didn't know what it was yet, but I soon would. When the World Trade Center attack happened, I was working for a company in New Jersey and uh, we got to see the second plane, you know, hit the building. And when that happened, we just sat there and we were just like shocked at what we, we believe, what we thought. And I say, what we thought we saw. Uh, right after that, two days after that, mysteriously, my boss says to me, because of the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, now mind you, I worked in New Jersey, that I was being laid off. I said to myself, what do I have to do with the terrorist attack on 9-11 that I should be laid off. You know? And I was making decent money at the time and I couldn't believe that this was the flimsy excuse that I got. So for the next month and a half, I was looking for employment. And while this is all going on, we heard all the, you know, the rhetoric about 9-11, you know, it was done by, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden and all. And uh, the jury was still out on that at, at that point. So while this is going on, I'm looking for a job. So luckily I found a job uh, in November for a company. It was a light industrial company. And the interesting thing about it was that this company was contracted to go out to the uh, ground zero and do the cleanup for 9-11. So when I started working there, I spoke to some of the workers who told me that the ground was so hot that their steel tip shoes bottoms had melted and they refused to go back to ground zero 
And after one week of working at Ground Zero, many of the workers who refused to return were getting respiratory problems, and then the job assignment was canceled com completely, which I, you know, now a red flag went in my mind. Well, how can the ground be that hot, you know, uh, three days, four days, five days later? So I realized it had to be chemical explosives of some kind to be able to cause that sort of a reaction. A fire doesn't burn that hot. It never has in history, and I defy people to say that it did. Then in um, December of 2001, I'm watching a, a, a report on Channel 7, and the reporter was Peter Jennings. And at that time, he showed that the FBI were investigating five men who they believe were persons of interest surrounding the attacks of 9-11. The FBI was asking for information from the public to find these men who had entered the U.S. border to Canada at Plattsburgh, the same border that I came through. When they posted the photos, two of the five men who had stopped me in 98 were in those photos. After seeing the photos that were displayed on the TV screen, I go, wow, I can't believe it. I would see these two men again, the same men who stopped my car in Montreal, Canada. Now, well, Max, you know, you were a military guy. If somebody puts a gun in your face point blank, are you going to remember their face? Of course you will. Not only that, I, yeah. I, I, I know how to take the gun away from him before he even puts it in my face. I, I'll take it off his hand very quickly. Well, you should have been with me that night. I would have. I, I would have taken it away from him. Believe me. So now I see these men, and I turn to the person I was with, and I said, "I can't believe this. This is what I've been talking about for three years. You know, that's been in my head. I needed to get to the bottom of this, and now." Luckily, I get to see this broadcast. So the following day on December 28th, 2001, I contact the FBI office and informed them that I was absolutely positive that I could identify two of the five men who were Israeli Mossad secret agents. The FBI blew me off for us, I mean, uh, Max, and told me that I had to be mistaken. So I said, no, I'm not mistaken. So I then called another FBI office in a different state and now I'm getting really upset because I know what I'm, what I saw. And here I was trying to be uh, someone who would not only see something, say something, but wanted to do something often. And I was noticing that the FBI was deliberately, you know, uh, stonewalling this right from the get. So in January of 2002, I found a social media site called GoOff.com, and I contacted the webmaster of it. Her name was Carol Adler, and right now she's, uh, she's involved with Dandelion Books. You could probably buy a book from her still on the Internet. So not, after, not long after I sent Carol um, my account of the events that I believe were connected to the 9-11 terrorist attack, and shortly thereafter, a couple of days later, she got back to me from a call from her, and she said that she was going to put my uh, story on her website. Soon as she put it up, she gets a, a phone call and she calls me again, saying from a high-ranking Israeli U.S. politician who told her to drop my story from her website or she would find herself in hot water in the government with the government of the United States. They would close her business. So she said to me that uh, she believed me and she said she would give me a name and email of someone in Canada who I could contact that was interested in following up on my story. 
Within a week, the Canadian official and I were in contact. He promised he'd follow up my story. In the second week of February, I get an email from the Canadian official that he was threatened by a high-ranking Canadian official in his government and that pursuing my story would be hazardous to his career and possible health. So in March of 2002, I was attacked at work by a man who was supposedly seeking employment at the company that I was working for. Now, the timing of this event could have been more than a coincidence, but I wasn't sure yet. In April of 2002, my home computer again was hacked, and many of the files and photos that I had downloaded from the, uh, from the Internet were lost. But fortunately, I had some copies on an external hard drive and a USB thumb drive device, but I realized that I must have had something that somebody wanted very desperately. I, I must have had some damning evidence. Uh, photos of the two men from the FBI website account, I had downloaded that, and I, I had that, and I believe that was explosive uh, in nature for the FBI because they were denying it completely. So right, a, right after this, there was an article in the paper, in, this, in the uh, uh, Bergen Record, how the, uh, the, uh, the police of New Jersey, the state troopers, arrested men with explosives who were planning on September 11th to blow up the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, and the George Washington Bridge. This was reported, and there was also men in Liberty State Park that were filming the event just before it happened, and they arrested them too. So they had forewarning that this was going to happen. The, uh, the men were detained for 45 days by our government. And then some high-ranking Israeli official got them released and sent back to Israel without being charged with espionage because they had found maps with them that they were definitely going to blow up the bridges and tunnels. And when questioned about it, one of the men told the state troopers, well, you know, we're on your side. You know, uh, we're not the problem. It's the Israelis. Uh, it's not the Israelis that are a problem. It's the Palestinians. And the officer just like looked at him perplexed, like, how are the Palestinians the problem when you Israelis have the explosives, have the weapons, and have the means to blow up, you know, three landmarks in New York City? Could you imagine, you know, the chaos this would have caused had they not been caught? So now, the official story didn't make any sense, Max, whatsoever. I mean, did the government really expect the American to believe that a man named Osama bin Laden, who was hiding in a cave without a roll of toilet paper to wipe his behind, was responsible for bringing down the World Trade Center towers? Of course not. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things that made me realize that, you know, that the truth is stranger than fiction. So, you know, th this was part one of my story. So if you guys have anything to add, you know, we can do that before I go into part two here. Uh, no, you're doing fine. You just go ahead and uh, take it away. Good, good. All right. So now uh, here in part two, it's the summer of 2002. And I wanted to take another trip to Montreal, Canada. But to my surprise, I was interrogated at the Canadian border by the U.S. Customs and the uh, Canadian Customs and told to park the car in a particular designated area and enter the Canadian Border Patrol Office, which I did. After an hour of cross-examination, I was refused entry into the Canadian uh, country. 
and given no good reason. So I returned to my car. I decided, you know what? Let me go and spend a week at a motel in Lake George. And that's what I did. I spent you know, a week there trying to detach from the Canadian border incident because it didn't make any sense. There was no rhyme or reason for this uh, turning me back at the border. In the fall of 2002, listening to the news claiming that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were working together and that the Americans should rid the world of these two dangerous individuals, I kind of find it hard to believe when this is a rush to judgment. And I thought without significant evidence, how could the President George W. Bush declare war against Iraq and accuse Saddam Hussein of being in possession of weapons of mass destruction? What evidence did he have? You know, in my mind, the only evidence I believe he might have had was that Saddam Hussein might have had a case of Viagra, industrial strength, and, and there was a Scud missile in his, in his pants. <laughs> you know, so that was the only thing I thought. I mean, it was a stretch. I think the act of aggression against the Iraqi people was a tragic event in our nation's history. And to watch on YouTube that tribunal and assassination of the Iraqi leader you know, was despicable that people could you know, stoop to that level and buy this asinine story. You know, when the dust settled, there were no weapons of mass destruction to be found. I was appalled and ashamed by our administration's barbaric tactics and total disregard for the opinion of vice of the United Nations, George W. Bush just decided he was going to go in there like a cowboy and go in there as a gunslinger and uh, take apart a nation that had artifacts, that had culture. Now, so you don't agree with the leader. That doesn't mean you do that to a whole country. Now it looks like a, uh, a demolition country where there's nothing there that's uh, even standing. So I just thought like it's a stain in our country's history that we went and did that without probable you know, cause. You can't arrest somebody without having probable cause. And they went ahead and started a war without probable cause. And I, I think, you know, when historians look back at this, they'll realize that the truth needs to be told. And that's what I'm trying to do tonight is to connect this where people can understand, you know, if you can follow the money, you can figure out who did it. You know, all the while, we're giving false news about Al-Qaeda and watching videos of the supposed mastermind of 9-11. And it was around that time that I decided to purchase a pair of boots because I knew there was too much bullshit being sent out by the media. So I started wearing boots uh, back when they started making those reports. And I, I, you know, this, this was too much. I thought it was like wrestling. When people watch wrestling, you know, the, uh, the scripts and, uh, you know, good guy, bad guy. And just my thoughts about the war in Iraq, you know, Osama bin Laden connection, it just all smelled very foul in there. And that's, that's part two for you. So if anybody has any questions about what I've just said, let's, we can, you know, I can answer them. No, I think you can, we'll just go right through whatever you want to talk about. Cool, cool. So here we are in part three. And this is, uh, time frame is between 2004 and 2007. I spent my time caring for my mother and brother. My, my spare time that I had, I was writing books and, and movie screenplays and trying to occupy myself. In my earlier career, I was a video sales counselor for a major electronics retailer named Circuit City, which later you'll see why I'm bringing it up. And it was there I learned about camcorders and video mo movie editing. In and around 2007, 
I created my first YouTube channel called Sandoni Productions. And now here is where the plot thickens. I started uploading movies about my experiences in Montreal, Canada. I created playlists about what I had seen and what my observations were and what I believed were the true events surrounding it. Within a matter of months, my YouTube channel had over a million views and hundreds of subscribers. I guess I was now on the radar. A lot of people were listening to uh, what I had to say very closely, and I was rewarded with, with the viewers, such as you're, you're, you're rewarded with the 378,000 people who, who listen to your show on a regular basis. So I commend you for that because you've got something to say and worthwhile, and people want to hear that. In the summer of 2007, I noticed black helicopters hovering outside of my bedroom window. My mom, who I was caring for, complained about a uh, a worker every night who, who would come into the, her, her bedroom, but she didn't know how they got into the apartment. So there was intruders, and she said to me, son, what did you do? I had no explanation. Could this have anything to do with your website and information about 9-11? So I took my mom uh, into my room. She's in a wheelchair, and I bring her in. I showed my mom, you know, like what I had put up and, and, and my uh, my information that I had. So now my mom was worried about me because she said, you know, maybe you shouldn't have spoke up. I said, look, mom, I put my pants on the same way every day. You know, my grandfather would have been proud of me, you know, and uh, and I, I, if I had to do it over again, I'd do the same thing. You know, you have to be a stand-up guy, and that's what I was. I said, you know, the truth will set me free, and that's what I told her. Now my computer's being hacked, and I was constantly on the phone with tech support trying to fix the problem. My mother even complained about her telephone being bugged. To make matters worse, there were individuals who were following me when I took my brother to his doctor's appointments. Now, my brother, he was uh, paranoid, schizophrenic, and he was in very bad shape on medications. So my brother, he became quite paranoid after that, and he became convinced that someone was trying to kill me. One day I went out and there was cars outside that tried to run me over, came right at me, crossing the street you know, at a high rate of speed. And I was luckily to get back to the, to the, the sidewalk. I kind of did like a slide in like a baseball play would, would to back to the, to the base just so I can get back on the corner. And the car goes down the street. It had South Carolina plates and it went down a wrong way street to get away. I couldn't get a photo of it, but I realized that it was a deliberate attempt to kill me. So I went home and I kind of like told my mom and my brother about it. And I, that didn't bode well. Maybe I should have not said anything, but I was visibly upset about it. Uh, my mother, by her doctor's orders, advised her to move into a nursing home around that time where she could get, get better attention and having people come to the home to care for her because she wasn't able to walk. So she reluctantly agreed. And I was now in charge with caring for my younger brother, Robert, which I had no problem doing because I love my brother and I'd do anything for my brother. Uh, we were only a year apart, so we were very close and there wasn't anything, like I said, that I wouldn't do, do for him. And I, I loved him dearly and I, I, it troubled me to see him sick and on these medications. And, uh, you know, he was like a junkie on the, uh, the prescribed medication. I was doing my best to, to give him his medication. But at the same time, I wanted to detox him, but I know I couldn't. 
in the fall of 2007, after returning for a doctor's appointment, I noticed that someone had gone through my possessions. There was no sign of forced entry. I then spoke to the superintendent of the building to check the security cameras for any unusual activity, but he informed me on the following day he found nothing to suggest that anyone was seen entering my apartment on the cameras. Nevertheless, I knew that someone had been in the apartment, you know, snooping around for who knows what. And we started receiving mysterious crank phone calls throughout the day and all hours of the night. My brother was becoming more paranoid with each passing day. Robert was worried that if something would happen to me, he'd have no one to care for him and that he would be institutionalized. But I assured him, you know, that uh, not while I'm around. So my brother, he was a big smoker. He asked me to go out to get him a pack of cigarettes one day. Upon my return, my brother noticed that I was visibly shaken. Again, someone had tried to run me over as I crossed the street. And again, I was lucky to be able to slide back into first base and, and get back to the corner. So I shared this story with him. And I, that was a real big mistake because uh, now all of a sudden he was having panic attacks. And at around 3 o'clock in the morning, I heard my brother crying out for help. And it was at that time I called 911 to have an ambulance, you know, uh, pick up my brother and take him to the hospital. So this was a, a trying time for me because I'm trying to, to take care of my mom and my brother. And at the same time, someone's trying to finish me off, which is uh, <laughs> a sad place to be in. But I'm stuck in this situation and, uh, you know, nothing I can do. Later in November of 2007, my mother signed herself out of a Jewish nursing home, and uh, my brother, he was in the hospital. And I get a phone call from the hospital's uh, home resource department and asked if I can come up to the hospital. So I come up to the hospital, and I was told that, that the doctor, by the doctor, that somebody was trying to kill me. And uh, they asked me point blank, is your life in danger? Is someone trying to kill you? I told the hospital official, my brother is a bit of a comedian. And they looked at me and said, no, he's saying someone's trying to kill you. Why in the world is he crying profusely? He hasn't slept in two days and something's got to be going on. So they decided that they were going to transfer my brother to a psychiatric ward for observation until his discharge, which would be in a couple of weeks. So here he is in a private room. All of a sudden, you know, he's uh, put in lockdown. I was able to visit him there under the limited visitors hours because the hours now change and I can remember leaving the hospital noticing black helicopters following me back to my mother's apartment so here it was that uh, I was getting an escort from these black helicopters upon my return from the hospital I informed my mother about my brother Robert's current condition and predicament my mother asked me to take him to the hospital again and we were told that my brother had been moved you know again you know to another facility with uh higher, you know, psychiatric uh, ward uh, containment. And we told if we wanted to visit him, we, we could only come like either four, 7 p.m. at night or 4 p.m. In, in, in the afternoon. And uh, my mother suggested we go out and have dinner at a local restaurant and a block away from the hospital, and we talk about it. My mother asked me about a thousand questions about my brother and what was going on and, and all of his prescribed medication because she was certain he's her baby boy. After the course of examination from my mother, I knew that my brother would tell her about the surveillance and being followed to the doctor's office and the black helicopter. It's just a matter of, you know, her course and examining him next. So at 7 p.m., my mother and I returned to Woodhall Hospital, which is in Brooklyn, 
And we went over to the desk and got two visitor passes. The elevator was, was nearby. I wheeled my mother into the elevator and I got her up to the sixth floor. And as I wheeled my mother's wheelchair up to the, uh, the sixth floor psychiatric area, there was a large metal door with a see-through window approximately two feet by two feet. So I rang the buzzer and waited until the hospital security guard checked in and, and checked over our visitor passes before allowing us to enter the psychiatric ward. My mother was now furious. I got to tell you, her face was beet red as a tomato. I could sense her blood was boiling. To say she was a little pissed off would be an understatement. We were escorted to the visitor's area where there were wooden tables facing each other, almost looked like a prison-type setting. We noticed there were visitors sitting there across from the patients, bringing them food or whatever. My mother then asked to speak to the person in charge. She then told me to take out a notepad and write down all of the names of the individuals in the hospital who had been caring for my brother, and she would, on the following day, go up to the hospital and speak to the administration department. So I pulled out my notepad and uh, followed my mother's instructions. Uh, so she gre- she's greeted by the hospital psychiatric doctor. And the doctor informed my mother about my brother's paranoia and his de- deteriorating health. My brother was in the room there and he noticed that my brother, my mother and I were there, were there, excuse me, talking to the doctor. So he came over, my brother then yelled out at the top of his lungs, Stevie, you gotta get me out of here. The hospital food is gonna kill me. So I couldn't help but laugh because here he is. He wants to get out. And uh, I know he was, he loved his uh, his Italian food. And I go, gee, my brother's not going to do well here with hospital food. I know it. So my mother turned to me and said, write down her name. I then jotted down the psychiatrist's name, her title, and her direct contact phone number. My mother then stared at my brother's head and asked the doctor, and who cut my son's hair? Why did they give him a crew cut? You had no right to cut off his hair. I'll be reporting everyone who's responsible for abusing my son. He's not crazy. You people working here should be committed. My son's rights are being violated, and I will not allow this behavior to continue. So my mother went off on him. If my son's not transported back into the main department of the hospital, my lawyer will be in contact with you. So the administration department will see. Do you understand? So the head psychiatrist, like, she just didn't say a word when my mother went off on her because my mother was looking out for her son. I don't blame her because my brother was physically sick, you know, and uh, he wasn't mentally sick. So on the next day, we returned to the hospital and my mother spent at least an hour talking to the administration, but to no avail. And so, and so as my mother was done with the administration department, I said, let's go back and visit with my brother. It was now visiting hours to go see him. My brother was visibly upset. He kept repeating, I want to go home. I want to go home. Please take me home. I don't belong here. My brother then bent over and hugged my mother. And I watched as the tears rolled down each of their faces. I then quickly flipped the switch by asking my brother, what would you like to eat? He immediately answered, Italian food. So I said, your wish is my command. And I answered, I'll be back with a plate of spaghetti and meatballs in about 20 minutes. So it was, the tension there was, was, was very high. And I said, you know what, I've got, to, you know, I've got to cut this tension. So I went out to get him something to eat. When I returned to the psychiatrist ward with the food, my brother grabbed the paper bag with the Italian food and consumed everything in about a New York minute. You know, he smiled and was pleased, you know, to see that he can get real food again. My brother was really happy. 
On the following day, I escorted my mother back to the hospital. After spending an hour with the whole human resource department the day before, you know, my mother realized that it was futile, that my brother was not going to be, you know, uh, moved back to a, a regular room. And uh, I, I can't tell you how, how upset she was. Later that evening, I returned to the hospital with dinner for my brother because me and my mother was in a wheelchair. She couldn't go twice a day, though she wanted to. And I, I had to, you know, bring her with the wheelchair. It was a lot on me to have to do it. So I promised her that every evening I would, I would do the evening uh, visit with my brother. So after dinner, I showed my brother a video that I created for him. I figured, all right, let, let me create a video for my brother. And it was something with him and I, photos of us growing up together. Because I wanted to get his mind off being in there. And I knew he was going to be in there for a couple more weeks. And so what I did was I created a short t trailer for him. And you guys can see it. It's up on my YouTube site called Stop Marconi. I changed the name from Sindoni to Marconi because I figured, you know, People are not going to believe the truth if you tell them the truth. So maybe if I write it as a comedy, I can get my point out there regarding the surveillance and what was happening to the lives of my mother, my brother, and I. And so that's what I did. Within a matter of a week, the, you know, the Stop Marconi trailer was uploaded to YouTube on my personal website. It didn't take long before my brother was telling me that in the hospital, he was a celebrity. They were calling him Mr. President because... His character in the movie goes on to become president and goes on to put all the people in jail that was trying to hurt me. So it was kind of interesting. Like, the, you know, while he was sick like this, I did my best to make him smile. So in the hospital, he felt good that during the course of the day, he was like recognized for uh, being a celebrity. So I was kind of glad that I did that. Um, on the day before Thanksgiving, my brother was released from the hospital. And when I went up to the hospital with his change of clothes, he reminded me, make sure you bring my pack of Marlboro cigarettes with you. So as I exited the hospital with him, I held the cab. And after helping my brother into the taxi, I observed a black helicopter hovering overhead. Luckily, my brother was unaware. He was more, more concerned with his pack of cigarettes and having a, a cigarette that he hadn't had in at least a month. So I was lucky that he didn't get to see that. In the last week of November in 2007, my mother claimed that her telephone was bugged. She called the telephone company. Here's what's interesting. She asked if they could send out a technician. So they come out, and my mother is told by the technician that he didn't know how it happened, but the wires from her intercom were connected to her landline phone. Now, how was that possible? And if so, who would be wiretapping my 85-year-old my mother's telephone in her apartment. My mother grilled me over it, and she says, you know anything about this? I said, why would I know anything about this? I says, I'm as perplexed as you by, you know, the, uh, the cross-wiring of the telephone and the intercom. On the following morning, I entered my mother's bedroom, helping to get out of her hospital bed and into the bathroom. That's what I had to do every morning. As I helped my mother getting washed and dressed, she told me about seeing a black helicopter hovering outside her bedroom window about three o'clock in the morning. So now my mother was aware of the surveillance. She then asked me, was I on the internet during those hours? So the cat was out of the bag. We're all under surveillance. Later that day, I was listening to a comedian named Jeff Foxworth, his comedy bit, you might, make, you might be a redneck. So he gave me an idea for a comedy YouTube video entitled, you might be under surveillance. 
So if anybody wants to see it, you can just Google the title or YouTube search the title. I appreciate you guys having me on tonight. It was a pleasure. I got to speak my truth and uh, share some things with people to realize that we're all connected. Okay. Thank you for being on the show. Everyone, thank you for being here. Uh, I love you all, and we'll, be, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.